This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello all, and welcome to another edition of Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. We're here on March 12th, 2023, and our teacher today is Tyrone Whitehorse. I'm Esther Kandare, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, and along with fellow board members Rebecca DeSchweinowitz, Chris Kimball, and Michael Austin, we're helping us out today. We're happy to have you join us. Uh, whether you're a longtime listener or you've just found Dialogue Sunday's Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all of the offerings that we have here at Dialogue. Uh, you can check us out on our website, dialoguejournal.com. Um, one of the things that we've started really building out in the last couple of years is an offering of podcasts um, that includes previous gospel studies as well as other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud, Dialogue Book Report, as well as other great shows like Shadow of a Doubt and This Global Latter-day Life. Um, you can find out how you can support that work and secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donation link at dialoguejournal.com. For those live on Zoom today, as always, you're invited to post respectful questions in the chat, and you can follow us along on Facebook, where we're also running a live stream. So without further ado, today's teacher is Tyrone Whitehorse, who I have the privilege of knowing for a couple of years now and interacting with a lot in the local art scene and um, I'm just absolutely thrilled that we get to learn from him today because I feel like every single time I have a conversation with him, uh, my soul is fed and I learn something and I draw closer to God and I'm educated and enlightened in some new way as a creator. And I hope all of you feel that way as you learn from him today as well. So a little bit about Tyrone. Uh, Tyrone is, um, and I apologize if I say this, any of this wrong Tyrone, but he is from many goats born of the white corn woman edge water people his maternal grandfather is one who walks around and his paternal grandfather is bitter water in this way he is navajo he is a public health professional an artist and a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints i am uh, he is from the navajo nation from the page arizona area he currently lives in provo utah and as a member of the church he has a testimony of the truthfulness of the book of mormon it is truly another testament of Jesus Christ and was written by my ans- by his ancestors to his people today. Uh, he is happy to help people in their journey back to our heavenly parents. So that is a little bit about Tyrone. Uh, before we get started with the lesson, we're going to have an opening prayer. And that is to be given by, oh, I put that in the wrong spot. Give me just a second. No. I have our closing prayer here. Well, opening prayer to Nil, would you like to introduce yourself since I have the wrong bio here for you? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Tanil Canyon. I grew up on the Navajo Reservation. I am actually related to Tyrone. We are family. Uh, my, my clan is many goats also. Um, me and his mom are cousins. Um, my second clan is red people running into the water clan. Um, my parents live in Lukatugay, but I claim the Coppermine, Arizona area, which is near Page, Arizona, as my home because um, I got the chance to live there while I grew up living with grandma and got to know my mom's family very well, which, I, which I'm glad I got to do. Um, I moved to Provo um, quite a few years back, and it helped me prepare for my mission, which I got to serve in the Dominican Republic. Um, after that, I married my husband, Joseph Canyon, and let's see, finished my degree at Utah Valley University, 
um, in business management, and I have four kids, and I've been a stay-at-home mom for the last 16 years now, so. Thank you. So if you wouldn't mind offering our opening prayer for us now. Okay. Our dear Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time that we have to come together. We're grateful, Father, for the gospel that we have in our lives and for the joy that it brings to us individually. We're grateful, Father, for you watching over us and being with us during our times um, in this life, Father. We're grateful, Father, for all the many blessings that has given us and for the wonderful weather that has given us and the moisture and you watching over us and helping us in all of our endeavors. We're grateful, Father, for um, the times that we have at this at this time, all the things that we're going through, for the strength that thou has given us through all of these things. And we ask thee at this time to bless us as we learn from Tyrone, Father. Please help us to fill thy spirit. Help us to be able to understand what it is that thou would have us to learn. Please watch over us, Father, and help us in our individual trials. Please continue to be with us and help us to be worthy of, of thy blessings and bless us that we may be able to continue to have strength and help us to help those who are around us and to be good missionaries, Father, and to be good examples. Watch over all of those who are in need of a blessing at this time, who might be sick or otherwise affiliated, Father. Please be with them and help them that they may be able to continue to be strong. And bless all all those who are listening at this time, that they too may also um, find whatever it is that they need at this time, Father. Help them to find the answers to their prayers, to help them to be able to find what they need at this time. And we say these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Before we turn the time over to Tyrone, I just want to make a note. As with any Latter-day Saint uh, scripture study class, the views expressed today do not, are those of the individual teacher and participants, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the Dialogue Board, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. So, take it away, Tyrone. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome. Um, as stated earlier, my name is Tyrone Whitehorse. Uh, I'm happy to be here this morning with, with all of you and thankful for the opportunity today to to teach um, a little bit about the Come Follow Me this lesson this week. Um, in preparation for this lesson, I spent a lot of time pouring over the scriptures, reading them, rereading them, uh, trying to look at the Savior and his words and actions from different angles. In doing so, I was drawn to a few themes that stuck out to me that I'd, I'd like to focus on today. Let me pull up my presentation here so you can see. First off. What I want to touch on is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we read, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sicknesses and all manner of diseases among the people. We also read in Matthew 9, 25, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. These, in these few verses, one of Matthew's main themes for, for writing about the Savior's life is he wants us to remember that he went around uh, teaching, preaching, and healing. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, what we learned about 
over the past few weeks was a good example of Christ's teachings and his preachings. Um, but today here in Matthew 9 and the scriptures we're going to study today, uh, we get to see a little bit about this, a little more of the Savior's healings in conjunction with his teachings and preaching. As I studied the Savior's life in preparation for this lesson, I was drawn to his interactions with people and how they can relate to us. So given these information, these chapters, I'd like to focus on the interactions he had with people. First, I want to talk about the setting. Where these scriptures today are taking place is in Capernaum, in the area around the Sea of Galilee. Um, Capernaum is located on the northeastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was at the crossroads of two highways, and it was a busy commercial center for people going to in and out of the city. It also had a significant seaport um, where Jesus often would launch his boats to go to other areas around the Sea of Galilee. Um, it being a commercial city, that meant it was also home to a lot of Roman officials, including tax collectors like Matthew himself and other non-Jews. I would dare say that the majority of the population in this area was, was were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. Jesus, but nevertheless, Jesus makes this the center of his ministry. When I ask myself, you know, why, why did Jesus make this the center of his ministry? Um, I think that it makes sense to me that he would he would make this a center so that he could uh, he could uh, call people who are acquainted with outsiders, with sinners, with Gentiles and people who are who are not like them. Um, in Jerusalem, that really wasn't the case. Most everybody there were Jews, people that believe the same. Um, it was a Jewish stronghold. But here in Galilee, the people from, were from all different backgrounds and all different religious beliefs. His apostles would need to take the gospel to all the world without being sullied by dogma that the only group of that only one group of people were deserving of God's love. And Capernaum was just the place to prepare his disciples for that mission. Uh, Matthew makes reference in in chapter nine, verse one today of, of our beginning, our reading that Capernaum was his own city, was Jesus's own city. And Mark uh, makes mention that he had a house there. Now, a lot of scholars aren't necessarily in agreement that Jesus actually had a home there, but rather what he meant by that was that there was a home there that Jesus spent most of his time when he was there. And they think most likely that was Peter's home. Um, so now, now uh, getting back to our lesson, due to his miracles and his teachings that he, he had performed prior to this, Jesus's fame was spreading. Um, Christ didn't have a problem uh, getting people to come to listen to him. He always seemed to have crowds um, around him. Um, due to this, in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, we read, and he went about, and he went about, meaning one of the people that Christ uh, had healed, um, and he began to publish it much, meaning what Jesus had done to him, and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter the city, uh, but was without in desert places. This being the case, when Jesus came to the city, he was most likely in secret. Um, as we read Mark chapter 2, verse 1, um, that when, when, it came, when he got to the city, it was noised abroad, meaning he had somehow got into the city quietly, and people began to find out. When I was studying this, I got to this point, and I, I started to think, you know what, this is a, a good, a good uh, area, a good place where we can remember and think about the humanization of the Savior. Um, 
I think uh, I asked myself, why does he, why did he want to enter the city quietly? And I think that in spite of his divine nature, in, in spite of him being uh, the son of God, he was also human like us. And like us, he likely got tired physically, emotionally, intellectually, even socially. Now that his fame was spreading, we begin to see him start to separate himself from the crowds every now and then so he could go out to the wilderness to pray and commune with his father. The separation to the desert or or solitude areas um, would recharge him for his interactions with the masses that he often found himself in. Uh, Christ was in tune with his inner feelings to the point that he could feel that virtue had gone out of him. And I would feel comfortable in saying that Jesus would be an advocate for us to take care of our mental, emotional health alongside of our spiritual health. And we'll see a little instance later where Jesus makes a priority of that. Um, Back to the lesson. As word got around to the city, people came to to that house that he was at. And uh, shortly the crowd started to arrive. Now word got out to four friends of a man who had palsy. Palsy being that he was, uh, he was paralyzed. And anciently at this time, um, this, this paralysis would have been caused by some sort of malady, such as a stroke. Uh, we don't know much about these five, the, the four friends and the paralytic, but we do know that they had faith in Christ. The first principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as article of faith number one uh, tells us. I, I just wanted to go on a little definition here of what is faith. I think that many a Christian would define faith along the lines of what Paul defines it as. He says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. The Book of Mormon in Alma, he gives us a little better insight into what it is. He says, and now as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if you have faith, you hope for things which are not seen, which are true. Some may understand faith as belief in things that are unseen. I'd venture to say that that faith is trust in someone or something. We all have faith or trust that the sun will rise every day. or We have faith or trust that the oxygen we breathe will be beneficial for our bodies. Um, there are many things that we have trust in. Um, some, some, some of us trust our parents, our, our partners, our jobs, uh, the principles of a good society. Trusting in something is a, is a given to lead a life of confidence every day. Trust or faith is something that we all have at some level. Um, but as, as a principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith can lead to salvation and exaltation. Um, but it's only if that faith is rooted in, in Jesus Christ himself. Uh, to trust Jesus Christ is to trust that our heavenly parents, through Jesus Christ, established a plan where Jesus Christ facilitates that plan to bring us back to them, to allow us to live with them uh, through eternity. Um, It's this trust that Jesus Christ has made covenants with us in order to bring us back to our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother, um, and that Jesus will not ask anything of us that will bring us harm in any way. It's to rely wholly and completely on on Christ and his atoning sacrifice that brings us salvation and exaltation. Faith in Jesus Christ is a principle of action that leads to us desiring to follow what Jesus Christ has asked, include, including adhering to ordinances and all commandments. <clears throat> so now it appears that the 
the paralytic and his four friends had heard of Christ's most recent healings of people. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine if you if you heard of a man who was traveling around and left a whole people in his wake, that there was a leper you saw sometimes outside of the city, and now he's inside of the city because Jesus healed him. There was a Roman servant, a Roman uh, official whose son was healed by Jesus. There was a paralytic um, whose friends, um, who was, sorry, like your friend, there was a paralytic who needed healing from Jesus. Um, and I think that would spark belief in, in anyone and that sparked belief in them. But they had more than belief. They, they actually had faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now you're in the city and you hear that Jesus is back and these friends concoct a plan that if they can get their friend, the paralytic to the savior, he could heal them. So they pick him up uh, and as quickly as possible and start rushing him to the house where he's at. But as, uh, as you come to find out, it's kind of hard to carry someone um, who's paralyzed. And pretty soon the crowd's built up around the house. Now, I wanted to tell a little story here. When I was serving as a missionary in Bolivia, uh, in the heart of South America, one day myself uh, and I, my, myself and my companion, Elder Hornby, uh, we were tracting in an area in one of the rural towns in the base of the Andes Mountains. And when we one day we came across a young man who was sitting outside his house and I noticed he was rather frail looking. He looked a little sickly. Uh, we both had the the inclination to talk to him, but before we were able to say hi, he was already calling us over. Um, he told us that he was sick and he was paralyzed due to an illness he had contracted over the past few years. And as we talked to him, he indicated that he felt his illness was due to the fact that um, a few years prior, he had turned away missionaries and he had treated them rather poorly. Now, we know that that's not necessarily how God acts. He doesn't necessarily punish us for our for our, uh, our behavior. Um, um, but he was rather adamant that he thought that's why he was suffering. And he said he made a promise that if he ever saw missionaries again, he would talk to them. So we began teaching this young man and we took the he took to the gospel wholeheartedly. Um, he was eager to learn about the restoration and how the gospel of Jesus Christ could improve his spiritual health. So we invited him to church and he indicated that he couldn't walk to church because he was he was sick. It was a few miles away to the the little house where we held Sunday meetings. So I myself, if you know me, I'm large in stature. Um, like Nephi, I volunteered to carry him on my back. So starting that Sunday, my uh, we, meaning mostly me, um, carried that young man the few miles from his home to the place where we held Sunday meetings. And I can attest that carrying someone, even someone who's paralyzed, is, is not easy. I couldn't move quickly, but learn that slow and steady got me to the finish line. Um, so I have compassion on these four friends who were trying to get their friends to, to the feet of the Savior. And this went on every every Sunday uh, with this young man carrying him to, to the church until his baptism. Um, and then one day his condition worsened and he, he succumbed to his illness. And at his funeral, uh, his mom told us that he was insistent that he be buried with his Book of Mormon. So I look back at that that experience rather fondly and it brought to mind vividly um, what these friends were doing when they arrived at the house when Jesus, where Jesus was. Now, when he got there, of course, we know that there were, there were crowds and I can't imagine their disappointment. They, they couldn't get into the, to Jesus, but they didn't give up. 
at that time is a little illustration of what the homes would have looked like. Um, uh, they had a little staircase that led to a flat roof area that was made of a layer of wood and mud and plaster, a lot like the Navajo Hogans I grew up with around on the reservations. Um, they were strong enough, these roofs, to support a bedding area or a workshop or whatever people wanted to use them for. So these four friends got the idea, the idea if they could break through the roof, they could lower their friend down to where Jesus was so he could heal them. These friends who had already carried their paralyzed friend to the house where Jesus was was now now had to climb a stair staircase or a ladder with their friend. Um, it might be that they might have to go a few houses down and then climb over a few walls to get to them. But I, I, I ask myself at this time, uh, you know, just how much work that would have been. Um, I also ask myself, uh, would I be willing to do that for my friends? Do you have friends that would be willing to do that for you? In Mark chapter 2, verse 4, we then read, And when they could not come up nigh unto him for the press, meaning the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they laid, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. These friends did not give up. What an impression do you think that made? What impression do you think that made on Jesus? The, the gospels indicate that Jesus saw their faith. The faith of this man's friends were, wasn't internal. They didn't just think and believe inside that Jesus could do what he could do. They actually put their faith into, into action. They made it tangible with their sweat and work carrying this man, chopping through the roof and lowering him down. That impressed Jesus. How can we show our faith in Christ? I hope Jesus will be impressed by the demonstration of my faith and how I treat my fellow brothers and sisters around me. Not just how I and not, not just how and not, and how I interact with them, but how I help those who cannot help themselves like this man could not. Or those who are suffering in ways that in which I am not acquainted. King Benjamin taught us an important lesson in the Book of Mormon. He said, for the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, I would that you should impart of your substance to the poor. Every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally according to their wants. True faith in Jesus Christ radiates outward to help alleviate the suffering of those in our surroundings. Um, and with the advent of social media and, and, and the internet, almost everybody is in our surroundings. It extends not only to the way we interact with people on a day-to-day -day basis, but rather how we think and feel about those um, even those who may not know and suffer the same way we do. Elder James W. McConkie III in the last uh, general conference said, with that telling of Mark chapter 2 in mind, several important truths become clear about Jesus as the Christ. First, when we try to help someone, we, we, when we try to help someone we love come into Christ, we can do so with confidence that he has the capacity to lift the burden of sin and to forgive. Second, when we, when we bring physical, emotional, or other illnesses to Christ, we can do so knowing he has the power to heal and comfort. Third, when we make effort like before to bring others to Christ, we can do so with certainty that he sees our true intentions and will appropriately honor them. We show our faith as we begin to, as we help and lift 
and bring others to Christ so he can heal them. It is not just uh, us that can do so. As much as we want to help alleviate the suffering of other people, it's only Jesus who can heal them with our help by bringing them to him. Now, we're not giving any insight into how long this man had been paralyzed or to what extent his paralysis had affected him. Um, But we do know one thing that was bothering him. Something was bothering him besides his paralysis, and those were his sins. Uh, We know that he was not only suffering physically, but emotionally as well. When Jesus states to him, son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. um, This was the first time in Jesus' ministry that he uh, forgave sins. Up until now, people had seen him turn water into wine or cast out unclean spirits, heal a nobleman's son, cleanse a leper, heal Peter's mother. Um, They had seen all these things before, but this was the first time he forgave sin. Um, A little context about what was going on at this time as well is in Jewish culture, sickness and illness uh, was often thought to be associated and related to sin. uh, um, It's not difficult to understand that that this man was likely told for a long time that his paralysis was because um, he had sinned or committed something in his past. Jesus telling him to be of good cheer is an indication that he, this man, was tormented by that idea and that he likely had committed a sin at some point in his life that he thought was directly the cause of his palsy. Not only that, he likely knew the works of Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was a rabbi an authority on not just religion, but theology as well. Um, He was likely scared and ashamed as he was lowered down to to Jesus Jesus himself. He likely had previous encounters with rabbis or other religious uh, authorities. Had that soured his soul? Had he been belittled to, to feel small because of his sins? Since sin was culturally associated with illness, did every religious authority before him point out that this was his fault? Perhaps, uh, but we don't know from the indications, um, but from the indications of the religious uh, culture at the time, likely. But this was Jesus, the Son of God. How would he react? Would he react the same way? Would he make him feel ashamed for his sins? Jesus, knowing that he was hurting inside, healed him of his internal trauma first, in a way that only that man knows. Regardless, Jesus has the power to heal us from our own internal traumas and emotional pains. If we come to him, Jesus can take these emotional pains away. Now, we need to show our faith in him as well, just like that man and his his friends showed their faith. But the demonstration of our faith is determined by Christ, and, and it's not necessarily the cause of our healing, but it's what facilitates him to heal us through his grace. I believe that if we are striving to do our best to confront our emotional pains, um, that's enough for Jesus to heal. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that we have the the ability to heal ourselves completely, but only Jesus can do that in his own time and in his own way, but that healing will come. It will come. I know that to be true. Now, before Christ uh, got to the physical healing of the man, there were those in the crowd who who said within themselves or who were whispering among themselves that Jesus was blaspheming. The Bible dictionary defines blasphemy 
as it generally denotes contemptuous speech concerning God or concerning uh, something that stands in a sacred relation toward God, such as his temple, his law, or his prophet. Leviticus 14.15 gives us some information as to what should happen to those who blaspheme. Um, he said that blas- he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as a stranger, as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Now, if Jesus wasn't the son of God, or if he was, what he was saying wasn't true, Jesus definitely would be guilty of blasphemy. But he was the Messiah. He had the power to forgive sins. He has the power that these scribes don't understand. And they should have known when he was able to perceive their thoughts and their whisperings over the crowds. And Jesus looks at them and he says, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? Or is it not easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee than to say arise and walk? Then Jesus indicates to the scribes, that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, or, or in other words, he was saying, so that you can know that if this man is healed, then I have power to forgive sins. Then he saith to the sick and the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, go into thine house. And he arose and he departed to his house. Jesus definitely has the authority to forgive sins. Now, in studying this part, I came across, and we come across a lot here, here enough, the scriptures that Jesus often refers to himself as a son of man. Um, the scriptures in the Bible capitalize son, but not man, indicating that the translators didn't fully understand uh, to what, you know, which man Jesus was referring to. They likely thought that Jesus meant that he was a son of mankind uh, through his service as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of all mankind. And this is not necessarily a bad representation, but Latter-day Revelation gives us greater insight into what Jesus meant. In Moses chapter 6, verse 57, we read, In the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name. And the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge who shall come in the meridian of time. The name of our Heavenly Father in Adam's language is the, the man of holiness. Jesus knew this and referred to himself as the son of the man of holiness, or he abbreviated to the son of man. Now, moving on in, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 10 to 13, we get another, another interaction that Jesus has with individuals. Shortly after calling Matthew, um, it's widely accepted by scholars that Matthew threw Jesus a party at his house. Um, we read that, in Matthew 9, 11, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Um, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Now, now I notice here that Jesus, sorry, that the Pharisees typically never asked Jesus himself um, his thoughts or reasoning on things. Um, they seem to always just go to his apostles who are, who are newly called and ask why their master was doing what he was doing. And this just reminds me that oftentimes my biggest distractors and uh, detractors from my celestial goals come from secondary or tertiary sources as well. But uh, remember when we talked about the cultural idea that sin was related to physical maladies earlier? Um, what do you think the Pharisees thought when they noticed Jesus, a rabbi, 
was eating with these people who were sinners. They probably thought that he was going to be infected with their diseases and he risked getting sick himself. So naturally, these these Pharisees who thought they were they were um, clean all the time. Um, they reasoned that they were the healthiest of the people. And these sinners and publicans were among the most disease ridden people around. Now, we know that this isn't the case, but Jesus uh, had some select words for them. But first, I want to talk about what a publican is. Publicans were tax collectors for the Roman Empire. Matthew was one. These tax collectors were not usually Romans. They were typically Jews employed by the Romans. You can see that um, for many Jewish people, the Jews who were collecting their money for, for the Gentile kingdom were not the most highly favored or liked people. Over, over time, a lot of these publicans would start to extort people and to skim a little off the top for themselves. And they were considered among the vilest of Jews. Now Jesus was eating with them. He had even called one of them to be his apostle. Um, now, we know that Jesus was, was becoming more renowned for his work as a healer. He healed lepers. He healed the paralytic. He healed Peter's mother. Um, so it could have been said at the time that he was a great physician. Um, with the last healing of the paralytic, he healed a soul. He forgave his sins. He was a healer of six souls. So who needed more healing? Um, who needs the most healing from spiritual sickness than sinners? Than publicans, who better to heal them than Jesus himself? He responded to the Pharisees, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Now, I think it's important to ask ourselves why he was welcome among sinners. The context of the time, these people were the lowest of the low of society. They were those of the, that the people of the cities and the villages looked on, looked down upon the most. Um, they were the cultural, the social, the religious outcasts of their time, and yet Jesus was welcomed there. Why? What did, what did Jesus eating with these people establish? I, I think it established a new cultural norm among them that he looked beyond their social status, beyond their sins, and he looked into their hearts. I believe in some way or another, those sinners and publicans felt his love and felt that he was concerned for them not just for their, not even for their status or even their sins. He made them feel welcome in a way that no other religious leader had in their lives, and they soaked that in. This became a norm for him. He reached out to the Samaritan woman. She was the first to hear him say that he was the Messiah. He touched lepers. He associated with immoral people. He dined with sinners. Not only was this nature, it was his eternal nature. From Adam and Eve, who fell from the Garden of Eden, um, and in so doing, they didn't deserve the, God, the blessings of God anymore. Christ became an advocate for those who are outside of society's norms, for all of us. His disciples saw this. They probably as were some of the people who felt uncomfortable eating with these publicans and these sinners, the people who took their money just months before. But Jesus extended his arm of friendship and love to them. Maybe that's why Matthew felt the need to invite his friends to this, this party, so that they could feel his love too. Not knowing the disciples would be expected to extend the same love to the rest of the world, as we, and, and we as covenant-following Christians, have the same obligations to do so today. How are we doing? 
better said, how, how are you doing in extending Jesus's love to outcasts, to sinners? Remember, like King Benjamin ta- taught, the remission of our own sins is tied to our dealings with these people. If we deal only with people who are like us, we don't get a chance to exercise our spiritual muscles and become closer to Jesus. Now back to Christ's words, he said to the Pharisees, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Here Jesus extends an invitation to the Pharisees. He invites them to learn what Hosea meant as he quoted Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, these Pharisees prided themselves in knowing the scriptures. Um, Hosea was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC, and he found himself among he found himself among the Israelites who, like the Pharisees, prided themselves in, in the strict observance of the law without understanding the law itself. A little bit about the law of Moses. In 3 Nephi 15, 9 through 10, we read, Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. Behold, I have given the commandments, for they truly testified of me. Paul taught as well that, that um, the law of Moses was a law, was given to them as a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. Now, the law of Moses was given to the children of Israel to bring them closer to Christ. But its meaning was lost through the addition of performative actions and laws. For Jesus to tell the Pharisees to learn what Hosea was saying was saying was pretty much a slap to their face because he was implying that they had no clue what it meant despite their mastery of scripture. In fact, they were exactly like what the scriptures were referring to. Hosea was saying that what mattered most to God was mercy, even more than the sacrifices and burnt offerings associated with the law. Enoch, in the Pearl of Great, Great Price, saw, saw God weeping and asked, how is it that God can weep? In Moses chapter 7, verse 32 through 33, we read, Behold, ye thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands, and I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them in the Garden of Eden. I gave unto man his agency. And unto thy brethren have I said, also given a commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me, their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. In these scriptures, God prioritizes loving each other before loving him. He notices that the people at that time did not love each other, but rather hated each other. You know, at this point, naturally, I come to to some self-introspection and ask myself, uh, do I... How am I doing when it comes to my relationship between the commandments and people? Do I prioritize commandments over people? Are my attitudes toward people uh, sullied by the lens of the commandments or the gospel? In all honesty, I can't say that. I, I can't say that I don't look at sinners too and like the Pharisees ask why Jesus would associate with them. I can say that I am in need of repentance myself and invite all of you to do some introspection about the same. Back to Christ's interactions. Um, Christ accepted that invitation by Matthew to dine. And in doing so, uh, when you dine with others at the time, there was a ritual washing of hands with these people. So not only was the master associating with him, 
with them, but he dipped his hands into the same dish to wash. So now the Pharisees saw that. So now surely he was infected himself with this, their stains and their sins, right? Quite literally, yes, as we know, he took our, all of our sins upon himself in the act of the atonement for us all. But Christ's response to the Pharisees that he had come to call the sinners to repentance indicates that in spite of the optics, Jesus was concerned with inviting these people to repentance. How successful was he? Well, we don't really know, but given Matthew's response where he just rose and left uh, his money collecting table, these people likely didn't have much of a problem doing the same. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, Christ said that he shall come, sorry, Christ uh, said he came to call sinners to repentance, to save them. Christ was condemned by the self-righteous Jews because he took sinners into his society. He took them upon the principle that they repented of their sins. It is the object of this society to reform persons, not to take that, take those that are corrupt and foster them in their wickedness. But if they repent, we are bound to take them and by kindness sanctify and cleanse them from all unrighteousness by our influence in watching over them. Nothing will have such influence over people as fear of being disfellowshipped by so goodly a society as this. And I, I strive to be this as well. May we as disciples of Jesus Christ do better at bringing the marginalized and socially outcast into the arms of Jesus. And may I suggest that we are the arms of Jesus here today. Now, moving on. Uh, remember that, or keep in mind that as Matthew and other Scripture gospel writers were compiled, compiled these stories years after Jesus was gone. So even though it appears that these miracles and teachings were happening back to back, they did not. Um, so sometime later after, after uh, what had just happened, a leader of the local synagogue, Jairus, comes and asks Jesus to heal his daughter who was sick on, his, on her deathbed. He said, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come, lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she live. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Jairus. Um, what do we know about Jairus? Well, well, we know he was a local leader at the local synagogue. He was a local church leader there. Uh, we know that he had a child who was dying. We know that unlike other religious leaders around him, Jairus had faith in Jesus. Matthew indicates that he came and worshipped Jesus. Um, what would it mean if a local church leader came and and from a different, you know, from a different church and worship Jesus and ask him for his help. It indicated that Jairus was desperate. I say that it was likely his last resort. But in order for Jesus to help Jairus, Jesus needed to see his faith. And I wondered what that looked like to Jairus's congregation. He didn't care though. He wanted his daughter healed. President Howard W. Hunter taught. This was an unusual circumstance for a man of rank and prestige, a ruler of the synagogue, to kneel at Jesus' feet, at the feet of one considered to be an itinerant teacher with the gift of healing. Many others, learning, uh, the learning, many others of learning and prestige saw Jesus, but also ignored him. Their minds were closed. Today's no different. Obstacles stand in the way of many to accept him. I find it significant that Jairus came not on his behalf, but on the behalf of his daughter, who could not come herself. 
I feel like this is how our lives should be in an age of distancing relationships and technology through texting, social media. It's easy to feel like you know someone without having to interact with them. I fall into this, 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 this often, uh, but I also recognize the importance of face-to-face, face-to-face relationships with people. That's a little easier to do with our own families, um, but also God has called us to have these types of relationships with people in our wards to whom we minister to. Do you have that type of relationship with your ministries? Regardless of your circumstances, like Jairus, when we have developed significant relationships with people, it's our nature to just want what's best for them. I hope we can do our best to to love and develop love for our family members and those to whom we minister so that when they are in need, we can run to Jesus and plead for his help like Jairus did. And just remember another thing that President Hunter taught, that whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives. If Jesus lays his hands upon a marriage, it lives. If Jesus is allowed to lay his hands upon a family, it lives. Uh, May I add that if you find there are troubles in your life or in your families, with your children, your spouse, or your relationships with your siblings, let Jesus touch that relationship. Now that may not come in the form of of preaching to them the words of Jesus, but uh, where is Jesus found today? Most often, he's found in his house, in his holy temples. Remember that if you bring your troubles and ask Jesus for help in his holy house, he can touch it there. And whatever Jesus touches, he lives. I find it interesting that that of all people um, with whom Jesus had interactions and 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 uh, this writing was happening years after these interactions happened. This man's name was remembered years after these events happened. Mark and Luke both mention him by name. By name. Um, so he must have had a great impact on these authors, but not just them, but Jesus himself. The name Jairus means one who shines or the shining one or one who is enlightened of God. But at this moment, Jairus wasn't shining. He was at the bottom of his despair. I can imagine his disciples at a later time retelling the story vividly and remembering the shining one, Jairus. So as they walked, uh, a servant relayed the message to Jairus not to bother the Savior anymore because his child had died. When Jesus heard it, he only responded, be not afraid, only believe. I'm intrigued by that statement. Um, It was not just an assurance to a now grieving father, but a request. Don't be afraid, just believe. How often does our fear squash our faith? How often in our lives does fear take away uh, what we really want and desire after what we have faith in? There's a mantra that goes around often saying that faith and fear can't exist in the same heart at the same time, and Jesus knew this. But he was not asking for faith. He was asking for belief. Christ knows that faith comes from belief and that when life is rough and hard and you find it hard to trust in God or trust in covenants and promises he made to us, that it is still enough to believe. And so Jesus marched on to the house of Jairus. We read on, and he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John and the brother of James. Sean, the brother of James, um, and he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult. 
and them that wept and wailed greatly. Now, it, wasn't uncom- it was not an uncommon practice at the time for a mourning family to hire out professional mourners to wail and cry at the death of loved ones. The fact that these professional wailers were already there doing their thing indicates that it took some time from the death of the girl to when Jesus arrived. Now, Jesus had another interaction on the way, and we'll talk about that soon, but this entire time, Jairus was holding on to belief, trying to do as Jesus asked. When they got there, Jesus finds these criers and states, Why you make this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but he sleep, but sleepeth. What was their reaction? They mocked him. They laughed him to scorn. Up until now, Jesus had known that demons know him and recognize his power. He had known criticism from the Pharisees. He had been called out for blasphemy. He had even been called crazy. But until now, he had not known mockery. Perhaps that's why Jesus had these people put out and only Jairus, his wife, the three apostles were there to witness the miracle. But why did they mock him? Maybe it was because they all knew the child was dead. She wasn't sleeping like Jesus said. She was stone cold dead. They had never heard of anyone coming back from death. So it's understandable that their belief, but rather their mockery, was beyond reproach to Jesus. So they were were not privileged to witness the miracle. I hope we don't mock the Savior in our disbelief of what he can do. Because that automatically disqualifies us from witnessing miracles in our lives or in the lives of those around us. Now once alone in the room, Jesus takes this little girl's hand and says says to her, Talita kumi which is being interpreted damsel as Santa Lee arrives. But I want to dive into that a little more. The word Talitha in Aramaic, which is this, the language that Jesus spoke, means get up. And it has a, a gender connotation to it, so it's what you would say to a, little, to a girl. That's pretty straightforward. But the word kumi, on the other hand, the translators here translated it as damsel, um, but also has a few other meanings. It can mean maiden, but it can also mean little one. But it also, it has a meaning of, of lamb, of a lamb, specifically the curly hair of the lamb. So it was from these definitions that Jesus was saying something along the lines of, get up, little curly-haired one, when Jesus was describing her. She had curly hair. I think of that as just one of the, the tender moments in Jesus' life and how sensitive he was to the people with whom he interacted. It wasn't, a, a, it wasn't just a given command. It was a specific command a tender command, a loving command, and she responded. Um, Let me take a moment and remind us that Jesus accepts us where we are and as we are, and through his spirit, he makes specific invitations to us that pertain only to us that help us along the covenant path if we're listening for them. How often have you heard a specific invitation from the spirit to you? I have. Check your patriarchal blessings. They're, They're likely in there. Um, but there have been times that the Spirit whispers specific things only to me, for me, to make course corrections in my life. Like this little girl, Jesus reaches down to make specific invitations to us all, even by name, if we're listening. If we listen, remember anything he touches, we'll live. Then, it was then, only then, that Jairus beamed, he shone, and gave light, and the apostles remembered. And they remembered his name because of that. Now, after Jared's daughter was raised from the dead, the, the laughter of those who mocked him changed 
to great astonishment, the scriptures say. Did they believe? We don't know, but most certainly they were ready to go tell everybody what Jesus had did. But Jesus stopped them and he said, and he charged them straightly that no man should know it. In nearly all of Jesus's miracles in the, in the gospels, we read that he charges those who witnessed it not to tell anyone. That was obviously hard because of his, because the fact that his fame was spreading means that these people were telling little by little. Um, a lot of people are mixed as to why Jesus did this, why he told them not to tell of his works. And may I suggest a few suggestions here? Um, first, that, that he didn't want his ministry to be cut short before it. he needed to accomplish everything he needed to accomplish. If word got out that he was the Messiah, Roman officials could easily do what they eventually did. Um, also, I think that um, if, if he became known just as a miracle worker, then his, his true mission as the Messiah would have been diminished for a lot of people around him. Um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 21, Jesus asked his, asks his apostles, who do the people say that I am? They respond, um, you're a prophet. They say you're a prophet or even Elias. Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? Peter responds, the Christ of God. And then Jesus tells them, tell no man of this thing. If word went around that he was the Messiah too early, his work and ministry would be ended earlier than he expected. And he didn't want that to happen. And so when Jesus performed these miracles, he asks the people to keep with him a messianic secret. Moving on, um, while you know we were talking earlier about how uh, Jesus and Jairus were walking to to heal his his daughter, as they were going, um, Jesus had another interaction in the streets with someone else. Um, we all know the story: the woman of the issue of blood, um, likely a, some sort of hemorrhage she had for the past twelve years. Mark and Luke make mention that she had spent all her money trying to find a solution to that problem. Mark makes mention that she had suffered many things at the hands of many physicians. Um, many of you, many people you know, can probably relate to this woman. Chronic disease or other ailments affect many people. I myself as a public health educator in my profession spend much of my time trying to educate the public on ways uh, that they don't have to go to the doctor for these chronic diseases or other preventable incidents. Medicine in the past 50 years alone has come a long way. Um, and as, as advanced as we are today, at the time of Jesus, medicine was more primitive, to say the least. It's fair to say that this woman and the state of medicinal practices at that time likely just threw her money away. But another important thing to note was that this woman, according to the law of Moses, uh, bleeding was considered to be unclean. All women uh, were considered unclean at least every month due to menstruation. And they had to go ritual cleansing that lasted seven days. Even those who touched a woman who was bleeding were considered unclean. This woman had been bleeding for 12 years. No one could touch her for the past 12 years. What would that do to a person? Do you think she longed for a hug? For 12 years, her life was upended. Not only her physical and financial life had been ruined, but she probably also had emotional, mental, and most definitely social distress. The whole town probably knew of her condition. Parents probably told her, their kids, that woman over there is untouchable. You can't ever touch her. This woman was a social pariah. 
the word came to her of a healer who was traveling around and had powers to lay hands on people and they were made clean. She likely heard that he healed lepers, that he healed Peter's wife, that he had even cured a man of his palsy. Surely this man could heal her. But she had no money. She couldn't, and she couldn't be around people for fear of making them unclean, let alone ask him to lay his hands on her because that would make him unclean also. She can't ask that of him. When she came, um, when she came by, the scriptures say she went behind the crowd and to, so as to not impede the rest of the people. Um, she knew her place. She got it in her head. If she could just touch his clothing, touch the hem of his robes, that would be enough to heal her. Surely that doesn't compromise his purity. It would satisfy the law and allow her to be clean. This had to work. Now, a word about the robes. Matthew makes mention that she decided to touch the hem of his garment, which, uh, what is significant about the hem, the hem of his garment? Well, in Jewish Jewish tradition, it was important for men to wear a tzitzit, or a bundle of tassels that hang off the bottom of the hem of the garment wearer. The tzitzit were fringes made of white and blue to represent heaven. Um, there were 613 knots to represent each commandment of the Torah. And it was worn as to be visible to the wearer and also those around them to remind each other that we are children and people of the covenant. It was set apart to bring God's love to those around them. As to, you know, imagine that today, if you saw someone wearing an article of clothing that was to remind them of, of them, of the promises God made to them, and you saw that, you probably would treat them a little differently because you believed and felt the same about Jesus, about Jehovah. Literally, this, this tzitzit was a symbol of Jehovah, of Jesus himself. Now, the woman had faith enough to believe that she could just touch the tzitzit, that the tzitzit himself had power to heal her if she could just touch it. Mark recounts, um, when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind. Press was always used to, to mean crowds uh, and touched the garment. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt her body. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. It worked. She was healed. But immediately the scriptures say Jesus knew that virtue or power had gone out of him through her touch. Interestingly, it wasn't the tassels that healed her as she thought. It was Jesus who did so. Her imperfect faith, maybe even superstitious faith, has facilitated Christ to heal her. She had pulled her healing out of him through her faith. But her plan didn't go as she had planned. She, he noticed. Jesus asked his disciples who touched him. They responded, you're in a crowd. Everyone is touching you. Christ scans the crowd to see who touched him. And he already knew. It was then that the woman had this reaction. Go back, sorry. Oh, well. Um, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what, what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. It's easy to understand that she was scared. Was this man going to react like all the other Jews would? Would he rebuke her for touching his clothing? Would she be scorned for breaking the law? Would he be angry like all the other religious leaders would have been? She didn't know. Yet it's in this state that we find her vulnerability. 
And she admits what she had done. Now, she hadn't done anything wrong. She didn't touch his body. She, he had not laid his hands on her. She came in around behind the crowd so that she couldn't make anyone inconvenienced. She had done this all so that she could make sure she didn't break the law. But she still felt scared. Was she justified in her fears? Oftentimes, we find shame and guilt around things that we have done. We feel fear in approaching God when we have sinned, just like this woman. Are we justified in that? Often, we are our own worst critics. It's sometimes um, our being too hard on ourselves that prevents Jesus from doing his healing. And these times, we need to remember Jesus' interaction with this woman. This was his reaction. Daughter, thy faith made, hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Jesus was reassuring of her. He comforted her. He made her feel at peace. It was important that this took place in the crowds because they too needed to know that she was healed of her standing in the community so that her standing in the community could be restored. Jesus isn't a rebuker when we make, when we make mistakes. He's a healer as long as we met, admit those mistakes in humility. He brings no judgment, just healing. He seeks to restore our standings in our communities. He only wants what's best for us. May that thought, the idea, that principle, strengthen our faith in him. One last thing. Who was there still who was standing in the background probably hoping Jesus could hurry this interaction along? Jairus, so that he could go and heal Jairus' daughter. It was during this interaction that the woman uh, came with the word to Jairus to tell him that his daughter had died. He was told not to bother Jesus anymore because she was dead. Yeah, Jesus could heal sicknesses, but he couldn't raise the dead. So leave him alone now. To which Jesus responded, be not afraid, only believe. We know what happened to his daughter. We know what happened to that curly-haired little one. In conclusion, I want to summarize these interactions that Jesus had with the people, these people uh, that we went over today. There's a whole lot more that goes on in these these chapters that were, were assigned, but uh, I wanted to focus on his interactions with people. First, when Jesus heals the paralytic, may we remember that sometimes we find it hard to come to Jesus for whatever reason. Remember that we can be better friends and show our faith to God through our actions for others. And remember that Jesus can forgive sin and heal other infirmities besides physical maladies. Second, Jesus with the publicans and the sinners. Uh, remember that we are the sinners and the publicans. We must always remember that, that to God, it's more important to love others before our performative religious actions. Third, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Um, remember, sometimes we are the ones who go to Christ on behalf of others and that we need to live in a way that Christ will honor our faith and help those we ask help for. Uh, we also need to remember sometimes we need to let others, like Jairus' daughter, we need to let others go in service on Jesus' behalf. Be not afraid and only believe. And remember that Jesus wasn't, isn't rushed. Um, although to Jairus, Jesus needed to rush to get to his daughter to heal him, Jesus knew and understood that his daughter would be restored in his own time and in his own way. Jesus isn't rushed. And lastly, the woman um, who Jesus healed with an issue of blood. Remember that faith takes risks. 
everything she was doing was a risk. She risked making other people unclean. She risked making Jesus unclean. She risked uh, making her standing in the community worse. But faith made her take those risks. Remember that Jesus can heal from afar. Remember that imperfect faith can heal us. Her faith was not necessarily in Jesus himself. She had faith that his little tassels could heal him, heal her. Um, that was not a perfect type of faith, but still Jesus honored that and healed her. And remember that Christ does not rebuke sincere repentance. Um, and remember that Christ seeks for our restoration to that which is good in our communities, and we should do the same for others. Sister Reina I. Aburto, in the last, uh, sorry, in the October General Conference 2019 talk, during his mortal ministry, Jesus Christ healed the sick and the afflicted, but each person had to exercise faith in him and act to receive his healing. Some walked for long distances, others extended their hand to touch his garment, and others had to be carried to him in order to be healed. When it comes to healing, don't we all need him desperately? Are we not all beggars? Let us follow the Savior's path and increase our compassion, diminish our tendency to judge, and stop being the inspectors of, spirit, of the spirituality of others. Listening with love is one of the greatest gifts we can offer. And we may be able to help carry or lift heavy clouds that suffocate our loved ones and friends so that through our love, they can once again feel the Holy Ghost and perceive the light that emanates from Jesus Christ. May we be more like our Savior and live in a way that initiate, that invites others to come unto him. If we do so, we will be blessed with opportunities to bring others to Christ. Sometimes we carry them. Sometimes we must pray and beg for them. Sometimes we bring Christ, and sometimes uh, we help them feel him. And sometimes we need all those things done for ourselves. I share that with you all today. It's gratitude to be here with you this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyrone, so much. Um, we probably have time for just one or two quick questions or comments from the audience before we wrap up our official session and move on into our after chat session. So if you have anything you want to add or ask Tyrone, drop that in the chat right now. Um, one thing I wanted to add, I really loved how you focused on the the interaction between Christ and the woman with the issue of the blood and the symbolism of the fringe and the prayer shawl in Jewish uh, religious practice. Something that I found interesting as I've studied um, ancient Near Eastern cultures is the prevalence of the importance of the border or a hem of something and that oftentimes that that symbolizes the transition between personal space and community space and often symbolizes your relationship as an individual to your community. Um, and so, you know, it's usually where a lot of cultures would put symbols that represented, you know, somebody's position, somebody's marital status, uh, somebody's level of wealth within a community. And I've thought about that a lot as, you know, I'm working on my art and the way that I use those those borders, both like literally and like the borders of clothing, but also like the the transitions between spaces, between things and how I can use those as opportunities to reflect on relationships and like how is I, I as an individual relate to my community or vice versa, how I as a community member then view my relationship, that transition between me as part of this bigger whole to an individual um, and, and how my perception through Christ should always influence those things. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that it was important that these, these, these tassels be visible, not just to the person who's wearing them, um, but they were visible to the community so that everybody could see who else was a brother and sister of theirs in that same community. Uh, but today, you know, Christ took that away because we live a higher law. We're supposed to be living a higher law and treat everybody the same way, regardless of whether or not they think like us, they yeah. believe like us, they feel like us, you know, and that's hard. That's hard to do sometimes. Um, I do believe that Jesus understands and knows that, but I also do believe that Jesus expects us to try better and try harder to treat people around us in, in a way that if he were there, um, he would see, um, they would see him in us. Yeah, exactly. I think something we also take for granted reading these passages um, is the the political diversity of Christ 12. Um, specifically, I think one of the two kind of antitheses you see are Peter, the zealot, and Matthew, the publican. Um, and, you know, to try to, like, bring that into contemporary context, that's like asking a, a member of Antifa and a Republican police officer to sit down and work towards a common cause and to see each other as brothers in Christ. Um, and I, I love how the chosen kind of gets at some of this tension and the things that the the disciples had to work through as they were following Christ. Um, and it always makes me pause and reflect how oftentimes I, you know, I, I think we're all guilty of this to some degree, see people as like, oh, they're not living Christianity correctly or like they're bad Christians. I'm a good Christian, whatever that is. But at the end of the day, our Christianity needs to supersede all of those things that we are Christians first, and then we can work out all of those worldly differences. Yeah. I, you know, in my lifetime, I've come to a realization that the only, the real commandment that God and Jesus gave us is that we love one another. He never asked us and he doesn't ask us to judge each other and say that they aren't living according to the way I think and feel and believe. Therefore they aren't, um, worthy of association with me or with Jesus or with the church or anything like that. Jesus only asked us to love them, to love everybody. That's, that's hard to do. I I recognize and understand that that's hard to do. But like you said, Esther, I think it's important to understand that the, that the political and socioeconomical differences between his, his, his disciples, his apostles were so great that, that, Today in our world, yes, that would be something very difficult to do, and I'm sure it was at that time. But the fact that Jesus brought them together is an indication that that can be done, that these types of people, the type of people that we live around, even though we are different from each other, need to and can come to a consensus as to what's best for the community, what's best for each other, and how to live together in harmony, hopefully in a more Zion-like way. Yeah, amen to that. Well, thank you, Tyrone. Um, I think we're going to move on to our closing prayer now. And if anybody wants to hang out and chat casually afterwards, you're more than welcome to. So our closing prayer is going to be given by Eva Miller-Keems. She is Navajo, born and raised in the Prover area. She's currently married and a stay-at-home mom of three kids. She's a third-generation artist and graphic designer. Eva. Our dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be gathered here um, this morning as saints and as fellow disciples. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have to um, attend church today and to um, 
to be here in these latter days. We ask that thou will watch over and be with us as we go throughout our day and as we begin our week that no harm or accident shall come upon us, that we shall be watched over and protected. Uh, help us to strive to be more like thee and to take the words from Tyrone and the spirit that we felt during this lesson that we might be able to apply it to our daily lives, to our daily actions and to the thoughts that come into our mind. Help us to maintain a spirit of giving and a spirit of service a spirit of love, and a spirit of Christ. We love thee so much, Father, and we are grateful for a Latter-day prophet who leads and guides us through revelation and through, um, through the priesthood. We're grateful for our personal revelation and for um, the guidance that we receive for ourselves through the Holy Ghost. And we ask that thou will help us to, um, to always speak up and to, uh, to stand up for those who, who need our support. And again, we love thee, Father, and we're grateful again for all that thou hast given to us. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.